0: Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Creating Gauge, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website createengage.co.uk where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's interview is one that's been a while coming, having recorded it back in August, but I can assure you it's been worth the wait. Today's guest is Jess Frame, partner and managing director at Boston Consulting Group. Jess was introduced to me by former guest on the show, Lindsay Oliver, after I asked her for recommendations for inspirational female consulting leaders that I could get on the show. Jess has had a fascinating career that's taken her across two continents and seen her move out of and back into consulting, not once, but twice. Having left consulting for the second time to go to work for Tesco, she then went on to run two multi-million pound businesses before going back into consulting as partner and managing director in BCG's retail and consumer practice. Jess was a brilliant guest and we had a great time recording this interview. In today's conversation, we cover some really important and impactful topics, including planning your career and how actually moving out into industry, can help you progress within consulting. Understanding why you're pursuing a career in consulting, why do you want to make partner, and actually the questions to ask yourself before committing to that road. Jess's advice to junior consultants looking to set their career up for success, and Jess's take on diversity in consulting and what the industry needs to do to improve it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jess, whether you are female, male, just starting out in consulting or have already made partner, I know you will take a ton away from this. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jess Frame. Hi Jess, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. To kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great to get an overview of your background, your story, and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. So I started my career, um, so I did an undergrad and a postgrad in economics. I then started my career at BCG, actually, in New York. So I was there for a couple of years. I then left and worked in the strategy for Ann Taylor, which is a large clothing company in the U.S., I then came back to VCG for consultant in the US, then I moved to London for project leader and early part of principal. I then left and worked as a marketing director at Tesco in the UK. So I used to look after customer strategy that then evolved into foresight and innovation work, lots of category and format strategies, and then customer investments. So allocating the spend on customers. And then I became managing director of NutriCenter, which was a small health and wellness retailer that Tesco used to own. I then left and most recently was CEO of a business called The Vet, which is a private equity-backed chain of veterinary clinics in the UK, and then rejoined BCG as a partner about four months ago.
0: Wow there is a lot for Potted us. Potted
1: history. <laughs> that is
0: firstly well done on the on keeping that short because there was a, a ton in there for us to unpack and I'm looking forward to because there's so many things in there and I, I think you know some of the things that again we we spoke about when we were sort of talking about doing this interview around actually moving in moving out of consulting some of the the industry roles you've had and, and we'll, we'll touch on all of it. I guess I'd be really keen to start with that that first part of actually I have listeners who range all the way from university students all through to to people like yourself at partner level and and that move going all the way to the states for your for your first job. I mean, it seems like quite a bold move. What what led to it and how did it come about? So,
1: so I was a child of the 80s and I remember vividly, I mean embarrassingly so, I remember vividly being in the, in the US probably when I was nine or 10 and seeing women on Wall Street walking to work with sneakers on, carrying high heels. And I just thought this was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. So I think there was a sort of childhood dream around being in the US and certainly New York specifically. And then having done two years of grad school, all of my, you know, undergrad friends had moved on and were in London. I was, still at university i know i owned an ikea table worth 50 pounds so it was like it it was sort of a low bar like from from a lifestyle point of view i wasn't leaving so much so um but also i mean i I, again and you'll see this as you ask more embarrassing questions about how i made my decisions very likely is the answer with most of them so i put down office preferences so most of the 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 big and and we'd probably say top tier rather than strategy but oh well we can chat about it later (laughs) consulting firms will give you an office preference so when i applied frankly i said or new york boston london and I think also doing grad school, grad school was very international versus my undergrad experience. So I think it really opened my mind to living and working elsewhere. And then it came through. And I think it was, I remember at the time, someone from London calling me saying, oh, congratulations, you're through the first round, you're going to go to New York. And me saying, oh, but if they say no, can I still come to London? They're like, no, 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 that's not how this works. So, yeah, so it was one of those things that sort of seemed like, why not? And then it all sort of happened very quickly. And probably one of the best things I've ever done, actually, if I sort of look back about decisions, I'd encourage anyone, especially when you're sort of starting out, because you're sort of braver and you'll go make more of it, cynically, I think, to go live somewhere else and just have different cultural experiences, especially in business. I think it's given me a very different perspective on things.
0: And that point around that cultural side is quite an interesting one, because I've spoken to other guests, and just other people in general, who, who have gone either UK to the States or back again, but done it, I guess, later in their career. And and one of the things that anyone I've spoken to highlights is the business cultures are, are quite different and that there's actually a lot of adapting to do. And I, I'm intrigued almost, having gone out at such an early stage, did you almost short circuit that, I guess, like learning a language when you're young? Because- you didn't know any difference, so the business culture you learnt in the states yeah, was it?
1: Maybe. I mean, I'd done sort of a, a raft of internships before I went, so i have been, I'd been, I sort of worked enough that I knew the, the, the basics. I think it's a big shock to sort of agree with what you said because you know we look the same and we sound the same, roughly, right? It's the same language. So I think you don't. I think had I gone to Beijing or Tokyo, I think I would have expected big cultural differences and been open to them. I think the why it's such a shock is because you sort of lazily, or I certainly didn't really think there would be any difference. And, and they were quite big. So if I'm honest, I think rather than being young, it was more about the fact I was British and young and everyone forgave me. I think they thought I was quite amusing and would sort of roll their eyes and go, oh, it's a British thing. And I think, well, it really isn't. Actually, that's just me being an idiot, <laughs> but we'll, we'll let that one go. So, uh, that yeah.
0: That is a great excuse for when you get things wrong, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Me being... I'm a Brit, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, her, maybe what... I'm interested, given where the point in life when you went, what were those biggest shocks that you found starting that first job you had to adapt to? And I almost think that now, given the position you're in, not so much the ones that all graduates face, but almost you as the the Brit abroad found completely different. Yeah,
1: I think, and, this, and this, again, this might be slightly in client service, but but I found that, and I'm in you know, big generalisations, but in my experience, that in the US the clients would be far clearer if there was a problem they'd let you know but then you could sort of you know get back to sort of a, a, an average functional working relationship quickly and move forward whereas I found in the UK you'd take more digging to understand why someone was being a bit prickly with you but if you could kind of get underneath the skin and almost let it blow up a bit you could then actually develop a much deeper relationship so there's a sort of there's a, there's, a, there's more of a politeness on some levels that actually can shield some some quite negative sort of passive aggressive things in in the UK which my experience in the US was much less so people were a little bit more direct
0: yeah that, that Britishness isn't it
1: yeah it, 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 we don't necessarily say what we mean and, and sort of helping and it's something that even coming back into BCG now I think sort of having been an operator it's the same sort of cultural thing again where we maybe you know from a, as advisors we tend to be super polite But as an operator, you sort of maybe work in a slightly different way. (laughs) And so helping people translate, you know, well, he said that, but what he means is, you know, hell no. (laughs) Like, I I think that's quite useful.
0: And I want to pick up on that, but I I want to just almost touch on how you found, so obviously going out there, you found you could just play the British card. Almost, you spent, I think it was four or five years out there with, you know, BCG and Ann Taylor and then came back. How much of a culture shock was that? Or almost because you'd grown up over here, things like the sort of passive-aggressive piece you mentioned actually it was almost like switching back does that how much was
1: yeah I don't know some and some I think you know wherever you start your career I think you have certainly I I had really close bonds. so BCG New York was kind of my family I had a class of people I went through with it was that sort of lovely so I think more internally it was an adjustment for me in terms of you know this was also a really really tight-knit group of people but I wasn't a member yet so actually from what I remember it seems a long time ago that the transition more for me was especially when you're traveling so you know in this job I was not in the office very often so trying to make the opportunities to make sure that I fully integrated, I think is the challenge and is important. So it wasn't really cultural. It was more about just when you have really close groups of people, you know, affiliating is, is really important.
0: I think we might come back to the, the location side. I, I'm interested as well, because I think something that is quite unique about your story is the consulting then i think as you called it sort of out to be an operator then back into advisor and obviously you've done that a couple of times and also interestingly if i take a generalization across the industry you've done it all with the same consulting firm so you know a couple of the caricatures you tend to find in our industry are you climb a bit in consulting then you leave and, and that's you done or you go to a number of different firms and so Maybe we start right back at the beginning of almost what led you to leave BCG in the first instance and and what was it that led you then to, to come back? Sort of as you did a couple of years later? Yeah.
1: So so I think first time I was, I'd been an associate for two years. I had that lovely arrogance of you that, you know, I completely nailed this consulting thing, right? I was totally all over it. So so time to move on. And, you know, I'm very passionate and I'm interested in stuff. And so there's a little bit, and maybe it's a bit shiny thing, but I think it's more about I had, because I've been at grad school as well. So I'd sort of, you know, I'd been out of education a bit longer than, than most. And I was ready to kind of get my hands dirty and do what I thought was a proper job, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, Ann Taylor was a really great opportunity to do that and to work in retail, which is sort of where my my heart still is. So great experience. I think what brought me back was a sort of bit of a reality check. Again, as starting at the beginning of my career in consulting, I hadn't appreciated what a privilege it is that the sort of the seat at the table that you get with very senior people that actually listen to what you have to say, <laughs> which which isn't always the case in industry, right? You've got a lot more yeah. layers of hierarchy. You know, you're, you're not you're not sat in the CEO when he's debating his five-year strategy. This was a surprise to me, you know. I, I can't tell you. So, so so I think there was I, I, I really enjoyed the experience. But I think I realized after a year that for the ambitions I had in my career, that I could accelerate faster at junior ranks in consulting than I could in industry.
0: And was there, and I don't know how you left and how you rejoined, but I know and I, I sort of talked to my own story. I think there was a, having left consulting to to do a startup that didn't then work out. There, were, I know for me, there was partly a, is going back a bit of a, a failure. And that's not to say it is. And obviously, the, I, I think you had a completely different frame on it. But I almost, at the time, was there any tension of almost, having left that sort of what will it look like if I go back? Or were you, you know, given the the way you've described it, completely at peace and it was just a natural progression for you? For,
1: for me, I realised it was the right thing for me and it's what I wanted to do. So it was more mm. about phoning BCG and saying, hello, can <laughs> I come back please? Which fortunately they were very, very supportive of. So it was actually a relatively smooth... I, re- I remember uh, a few calls sort of outside the, the office trying to sort of set it all up, feeling suddenly quite nervous that they wouldn't have me back and, and everything. But because I decided I really wanted it, if that makes sense. Had it been a no, um. Might I have considered other places? Possibly. But, you know, from a consulting firm perspective, then, you know, BCG is is, is my home and where I think is the best. So it, it's, yeah, it, it was always going to be my first choice for sure.
0: And is that, because I, I know you do a lot around mentoring young people and it, it's a topic we're going to come on to because I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your views. I'm sure you have been or get asked almost both of those questions quite a lot of, should I leave and should I come back? Or what, how did you decide it was the right decision, or if it's an easier question, what advice do you give others when they they come to you with that?
1: I was from someone very recently about the same thing, actually. So I am probably a bit do or dare, do or die, I guess. So like, if you're not sure, do it, is always my theory in life generally, right? So, so take everything I say with a pinch of salt and the right health warning. But I would say to anyone, and certainly what I, and and, and probably less so, you know, when I left to go to Antenna, I was an associate, I was relatively junior on. So more when I left in 2012 as a, as a principal to go to Tesco, that was probably a bigger, slightly more considered decision from a career yeah. perspective. And I guess my learning, there were sort of three things that I'd suggest anyone learn out for. So the first one is, is there a path to the role after this one? You know, what where, where's the succession? And I relate to that is how do you sort of get out of the strategy group and into PL ownership? So so if you you know if you want to work in strategy then it's not not a question. But for me it was always about very ambitious and running businesses and having bigger and bigger roles. And that means you need to be running in a PL. And so there can be a challenge coming as a consultant and I've seen it happen to clients where you kind of get sidelined as you're sort of the, the, the strategy person. Yeah. And so make sure there's visibility on you know, 18 months, two years, where are you moving to next? So it's thinking about the job after this one. And related to that is how do you avoid being seen as the big brain, which is what, like, you get called it. I used to be called it Tesco in the early days. (laughs) And it's almost a lazy thing you see a consultant and go, ah, they're the big brain, but they're not a doer. They can't get stuff done. So again, making sure you position yourself in a role gives you the opportunity to say, that's wrong and let me show you. I think it's really important, or certainly in my experience, it was really important. And I guess the other thing is making sure you enter at the right level. So I encourage everyone to be very, and it was my experience, I'd be very cautious about taking a step down. So depending on where you are in consulting, in my experience, some industry players sort of do or don't make sense of the different roles. And so making sure you're not going in where they say, well, you're not quite at that level, so we'll bring you at the one below and then you can get promoted quickly. Big health warning, because you know what? It doesn't happen quickly. You're going to get really frustrated. People aren't necessarily going to understand who you are. It takes 18 months for anyone to really land in a role and have impact. So fight for the promotion and go in maybe a little bit over where you think you are and prove them all wrong would be my my big advice on that one.
0: I think there's some great pieces of advice. and I, I'm intrigued actually in terms of almost, that obviously applies as you, you're having the conversations. I really like it. It's almost the how can people position themselves for you know, take PL ownership of almost if I'm thinking of leaving consulting in a year's time what should I be doing now, almost, to be able to have a solid case to say, "Well, look, now I can't do PNL, but because of XYZ i Z, I'm yeah. getting close to yeah. it."
1: I think certainly in, in I sound really old now. In my time, <laughs> when I was doing it, it was a lot harder. So you know, sure. when, when I say sort of, we'd see as ourselves as a top tick firm as opposed to a strategy house, is because frankly, in the last ten years, what we do is very, very different. So there's a lot more getting your hands dirty, operational work. You know, ten years ago, it might be more with the CEO and the board thinking long-term strategy. Don't quote me on percentages. i'm sure that's like 10 20 certainly of how i spend my time now 80 percent is much more about in category with buyers in the supply chain in the dcs in the shops like actually really doing advisory work on on you know implementing and landing change so i think that probably gives more scope in answer to your question to actually have experiences that are relevant so i guess on that front you know in industry is always helpful so the same industry you're going to get, be going into but i think there's just a reality which you know and i've seen this i've spoken to a number of headhunters about this that there's advisors and those of us from professional service firms i'm sure that includes lawyers and bankers as well we sort of go you know i earn this you know, this big salary and i you know i'm very very senior in my business so i'd like the big job in your business please it's like what have you done like no <laughs> like you know, it it doesn't translate and i think one has to be a bit sort of keep their ego in the right place around understanding what you can't do. So, I mean, I remember when I was interviewing with Tesco and, and they were like, give me an example when you've run a big team of people. I'm like, oh, you know, I had three consultants on my last project. They're like, what are you talking about? Like the guy I just interviewed has a team of 800, you know, and, and it's just understanding that, you know, you're bringing something very different and that's okay. Yeah. But I think being really aware of, you know, you haven't run a PL. and l and, and even, you know, tracking margin impact from a project is not the same thing. You haven't run a PNL probably. You probably haven't run large and complex teams. So yes, thinking about, you know, but you have incredible senior presence. You have an ability to solve a problem quicker than lightning. You probably have great influencing skills. You can get across the business and drive change very effectively, which is 80% of the job usually in big businesses. So, so just thinking about your brand and your profile and what you do bring and, and kind of being proud of that as opposed to trying to pretend you're what you're not.
0: You mentioned that example, and I'm really interested on that bit of almost to bring it to life. You obviously got the job at Tesco's. I assume it's the job you, you went. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. how did, because I'm sure this will be really relevant for others, when they turn around and said, you're up against the other candidate who's got a team of 800 under him or her show me why you're better how did you approach that and because obviously it was successful to get them to see your way of the world and why you added more value than that person
1: yeah i think it's sort of the basic thing of understanding uh, and that's why the first conversation is really asking questions what are they looking for what do they want the role to achieve you know don't assume that the role spec as written is the final version because most jobs i've gone for they've changed halfway through the interview process so you know understand why they want what they want And then think about what you can bring, you know, sort of old school interview prep, really. And I think being really important about knowing your story of what you bring to that opportunity in that role and and focusing there. Because there's always a trade-off when you're recruiting people and you're hiring people, right? Everyone's got spikes in different areas and and being very open about what yours are, I think, is really important.
0: And help me, if I'm right, I've got a question. If I'm wrong, we'll move on. Is is principal... In terms of sort of the BCG pilots principle, is is that the one before partner? Exactly. That-
1: yes, exactly.
0: So that leads me on to the question, opens the door. And, and the reason I, I touch on that is because I'm getting a bit older. I then have friends and colleagues who are older and, and in that position. And I, I always think it's a fascinating grade in that there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of, you know, you've done your 10 or however many years to get there. There's potentially making partner. But equally, there's some who either they're not ready for that or or aren't sure if they want that and I almost all of those things coalesce to make it a fascinating point to see where people take their career and actually how did you because you mentioned that's when you moved on how, how did you decide that you were going to go into industry and almost what should others who are at that point be thinking about when they're weighing up that decision
1: yeah so I've been speaking to you recently and they're in exactly that role as well so it's sort of cast my mind to those conversations so I think the really important thing is to well uh, I have to be careful giving advice, right? In my experience, <laughs> I'll
0: give advice. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're the Everyone guest. loves
1: the old lady giving their opinions. Um, so I would take a bit of pressure off yourself in trying to decide what you want to be when you grow up. Because, full disclosure, I've got no idea. Yeah, I have no idea where I'll be in five years' time. And that's kind of fun and that's kind of okay, you know. And I think sometimes sort of what I wish I could have told my younger self and what I try to impart to to younger colleagues is just give yourself a break. You know, when you're 25, 18 months is a lifetime. When you're 40, it's really not. And I think it's really important to sort of think about, you know, if you're going to be working for 60 years, let's keep all of this in context, so I would think about what's interesting next. I would think about, you know, maybe think three years or something. So sort of the, the job after next, I was always thought it was quite a helpful sort of reference. But actually, how sad if you know what you want to be when you're 25. Like, oh, dear, you know, all, all that fun and exploration and everything. And, and, you know, candidly, the jobs aren't invented yet. You know, what what jobs will look like in 10 years. I saw a great stat recently. It said something like 50% of millennials believe that their jobs will be done by robots in 10 years time. I mean, that's just a very different perspective than certainly I had as I was graduating and thinking about where I was going to go in my career. So... Number one, I guess, don't worry so much about it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, decide where you are. What do you want to do the job after next? And almost what experience do you think would it would be rich next, mm. I think is the important thing. And also understanding, which is a conversation I often have, is if you're pre-partner a consulting firm, you're thinking it might be the time to move on, you want a different set of experiences, don't take the first thing that comes along. Be, and again, you know, do as I say, not as I do. But I was lucky in that it was a job that excited me and I wanted to do. But I, but I see a lot of people saying, "Well, this has come along, and you know, it's sort of okay. And you know, you, you don't jump too soon because it's, there's no burning platform for you to move from, presumably. So take the time to pick the right thing. I say back to those points of, you know, where you land is so important to what's going to happen in the next three to five years. Because if you come in and you haven't got that path for the next role, if you haven't got the ability to show you are broader than what you've been before, then it can be very easy to get stuck and I see people with great potential ending up sort of being in, in-house strategy people which again it is a great role if that's what you want to do yeah. but if you're leaving mm-hmm. to go into industry to do broader or operational roles you've got to choose those options wisely so sort of don't rush I think is, is the important thing and also there's this sort of often people think it's got to be a secret and it's all very secretive and, and you I remember when I, I resigned the second time being told like Jess is the only point of me even trying to convince you otherwise I was like no no it's all done but actually at the time the senior partner said to me it's fine for you it sounds good great whatever but you know i often think it's a shame that people don't come and talk to us because we know so many people in industry we understand how these businesses work we could have helped you negotiate better money better role there's a job going somewhere else i could have talked to you about so i think it is just being a bit more open about things and having a dialogue like everyone in consulting knows that people move in and out it doesn't have to be a a long-term career option and that's fine that's part of the model so i think just being a bit more don't, don't think it's taboo get advice
0: I think that's a great point. It's funny now, having left consulting and, and sort of doing this podcast, I get a number of people sort of asking for help and thoughts. And me, 24, 25 year old Nick, I did and would have taken the the absolute opposite, which is keep it really secret and then hand your notice in and, and run away. But I think you're, you know, you're spot on. Actually, it's amazing the network that your colleagues have. And, and I think I only saw it in hindsight of actually, like you mentioned as well, people go in and out. So your previous firm presuming they haven't kicked you out because you were rubbish which is the sort of caveat that goes with all of this but, but, um, but not
1: even that like it's like that's that's professional services there's you know in the in the younger cohorts it's up or out right or the junior cohorts I should say it's up or out so uh, there is always going to be a flow in and flow out of talent and you know the fact you're here yeah. means you're in the top what 0.1% of, of IQ and attainment in the UK like yeah. you know you're going far and so I think it doesn't need to be taboo even that like you know if it's if you have a conversation that's actually consulting isn't for you that's not what it's going to look like like certainly from BCG point of view, let's talk about how we can help you be successful. Mm. How can we help set you up with interviews? What kind of training can we give you? Like, you know, it, it doesn't need to be the sort of you're part of the gang or you're not, right? Because yeah. you are you are always going to be one of the family. So let's understand what what's good for you. And again, you know, the resources you've got at your fingertips as a sort of a, a more junior person thinking about what's coming next in your career or any level really is huge. So you, you sort of only do yourself a disservice, I think, if you don't reach out
0: yeah and we will come on to the the junior levels because I, I i think there's a lot there for them and i don't know if this was captured in in that group i there's another group for me who are unsure whether they want to leave consulting or almost they don't see it as a the next step before then maybe coming back it's more of a right it's time to to get out or You know, do I do another two or three or four years to make partner or do I actually say, right, for whatever reason, this is it? And it's that group, I guess. Have you had any conversations around that? that, And it might be the same advice that sort of what questions people can ask to decide if actually it's time for them to move on or if...
1: I guess from my point of view, again, you know, I'm sort of a if in doubt jump, right? So caveat. (laughs) But but if you aren't sure it's the right thing why do an extra four years it sounds like a sentence oh just get through another four years like why like who's giving you a prize at the end of it like it's your life you know like you have to get up and go into work every day yeah and and you know you know listen we're all realists and I think there is something that you know we've got to be careful about expectation management every week is not going to be the funnest week of your life it's a job it's the same as everywhere every job I've ever had there's been good times bad times etc but fundamentally sort of month to month or certainly year to year you don't feel that you're net gaining from it, then what are you doing? Like, I mean, just (laughs) life's short, right?
0: So I I fully agree with you and I I love that advice. And I think so so often, and actually it's something that I think our industry is particularly poignant in, in consulting because in industry, there is an element of you can't progress unless someone moves. And so that sort of forces it. Whereas in consulting, because you have the grade jumps and grade comes with salary, responsibility, all of this. I have heard a lot of conversations and I'm now at the age where people are starting to be sort of director partner or principal partner. And there is that thought of, oh, well, if I do two more years, I get the, you know, the golden chalice and the I think that's just the, you're putting something on a pedestal that when you get there, same old thing, you know, the, the world doesn't change.
1: I think that's a really important thing. So I, many years ago, and I won't give you his name, but I will close with pride, <laughs> uh, a, a senior VCG uh, who, I, who I worked with when I was an associate, sure. I remember saying to him, wow, you know, your partner now, it's big, important stuff. Like, so what's it like? And he was like, you know, the thing is, Jess, it's like winning a burger eating contest and the prize is more burgers. <laughs> 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 Amen, right? So I, I think it's important, like you know, the, the job. There's nuances, but you're still fundamentally doing the same thing. So if you don't like it now, you're not going to like it in five years' time, right? Like well, I, don't, I don't, like you know, I think, you know, or rather, if you don't like it, if you're ready for a change, you know, mm-hmm. variety is this, and also, again, coming back to how consulting's changed, sort of in the time I've been away, and it was, it was moving that way before I left, but now it's so different in that, you know, clients want experts. So if I'm going to bring you in to support me on this particular topic, I want you to be the best person in the UK, if not globally, on this topic. Fair enough. So so the days of, sort of that generalist, well, you know, I know how to help people. I'm pretty good with data and I'm sort of smart and whatever. It doesn't really wash. So again, and certainly in my experience, having industry experience, having relevant experience mm. is is just huge. So if I think about I was at a pitch not so long ago with a team of all levels and every single one of us in the room was like, oh, well, I used to work for this retailer and now I'm in consulting. Yeah. So these were retailers talking to retailers that, you know, had different skill sets, but that's really powerful. So again, having industry experience actually doesn't close doors. It opens them from a consulting perspective and, and really vice versa, I think.
0: And that does feel like it because you're, you're actually, you're not the, the first guest to make that point of actually the clients in our industry are no longer looking for, like you say, the sort of 20-year consulting veteran. They want the skills with the realism and the understanding. And actually, this does seem to be more and more smaller firms cropping up to, who are almost trying to bring that industry experience into consulting where maybe they don't have the consulting background because of that. So I think it's a a really powerful point. And I guess almost building on the industry side, because I'm with you around the moving and doing, you know, if it's all just for money, you may as well go do something else because you spend long enough doing it. There's there's better ways to make money or probably easier ways. But actually that shift, particularly at the senior grades into industry, because I know I went from consulting into contracting, which was a complete shift. And I've talked at length to others about it and on, on this show, so I won't, won't bore you with it now, but I'd be interested actually, we talked about the, the geographical differences, but actually those biggest shifts when you went from a consulting environment to a, a sort of an operator environment, and actually what was it that took the most getting used to or the biggest learning curve in that?
1: I think pace was the biggest shift. And also I went to Tesco, which is known for being super, so retail's fast and yeah. Tesco's the fastest of the fast, I would, in my experience. <laughs> so there was definitely, I remember having a conversation with one of the the, the senior execs there and him sort of saying, you know, listen, it's sort of like a wave, you're either getting sucked down by it or you surf it, like, you know, kind of decide. And obviously coming from consulting, I was like, you know, I know fast, I can move, and I do, I talk fast, I think fast. Blah, blah, blah. But there was a different sort of bias towards action that in my experience of consulting, it's less so because you're not, running the business, right? You're not operating it. You're advising on it. You're, you're getting to answers quickly. So, it's, so I think that was probably the biggest learning is in terms of how can you move at pace and 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 again that was two things. One was getting to the 80% good enough answer or really 60% good enough answer, right? It's like let's get something done next week. Let's yeah. move. And the other one, which is just one of the best lines, was try stuff. So as a consultant before that, I hadn't had chance to try yeah. stuff. Whereas in retail the mantra was like, well take 10 shops and build it and see what happens. So it's very much more that, you know, the MVP agile, we all call yeah. it now, but actually I think retail's been doing it for 20 years, really, 30 <laughs> years, which is, which is just, just try it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Try some stuff. And I think that's a really helpful way through of, of having impact in, in industry. I was, I was talking to a CEO quite recently saying, well, why not? just take a group of sites and do everything there and see what happens. Because I think it's a quicker, especially, you know, and my experience in terms of managing investors and boards and the and, and same thing, if you've got a lot of change to do, sometimes it's hard to keep selling the same story for 18 months. But if you've got one place you can see numbers moving, that can be more effective.
0: Yeah. It's something I've heard a lot of people argue the, the other way. It's the same point of almost in our industry, there is or has traditionally been too much focus on perfectionism of, you know, the slide deck needs to all be aligned correctly. And obviously there's, there's certain hygiene elements that are, you don't want spelling mistakes and things, but actually do you need the extra 10 hours on getting the deck right? Or could you, I guess, like you say at Tesco's, just put it in and and see what happens. Was that something that came relatively easily It sounds like you you rode the wave or did that take a bit of adjusting almost to get it not to the the level you might have been used to? And I might be being unfair. No, no,
1: it definitely, I think there's two things. So I think quality of work is critical as an advisor because that's kind of what you are and that's what you have to offer. I think there's a different point around pragmatism of the amount of work or the amount of production around the work Mm. which I think I see differences now to when I sort of first started where it was like the deck was king I see a lot more now in terms of let's think about 10 pages that really make the story leave the other 90 and like not worry about it and actually sort of do the thinking and and Mm. I think it's really important and it's important for sustainability of this job actually but I yeah I think it's about listening to the clients because because as a client and obviously I've been a buyer of consulting work as well I don't want to read that many pages like call me lazy you know but but people have got big jobs and busy jobs and day jobs and while maybe it's good to have some backups in case I've got some questions broadly speaking no one goes yes when a hundred page pre-read arrives in their inbox like nobody <laughs> find me the person so so I think it is it is it is frankly being more client centric and saying what's actually helpful for this person in this environment so my sort of flip side story so. God, goodness, no, it was it was a car crash from what I remember, i mean, I exaggerate a bit, but I remember one of my first team members at Tesco, I was doing a, a pack on something, a big diagnostic on something, and I could just see her eyes glazing over. And I get so much, I think she even said to me, was like, I'm just not sure this is a job for me, actually, Jess, but, you know, best of luck with it. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, let's have a conversation. Because she had been consulting but had been in retail for four years, I think, at this point, whereas i come straight in. Yeah. And it was that clash of like, well, let's spend an extra seven hours getting this right. And I was like, really, Why? You know, and so actually, so she probably taught me the most in terms of sort of having impact in a retail or any. I think probably any operational environment. So it was an adjustment for sure, but it was a quick one. So I hope, uh, only painful for her, bless her, in the first couple of months, I think.
0: <laughs> Maybe then, just to, to sort of bring us full circle, to get to back to to where you are now, because I think the. The other side that's quite interesting from your your time in industry is you you obviously went from Tesco's huge sort of monolithic business into and I appreciate NutriCenter was was a Tesco's business but into a smaller business and then into a vet which is an even smaller business almost how did you find those moves into sort of the more from sort of big to to small and. And what were some of those differences? I'm particularly interested if someone is, if you imagine someone's looking at each of those three businesses as their next move out of consulting almost, what were the big differences or maybe similarities across those different sizes? Yeah,
1: a, a huge differences and, and huge learning opportunities. So one of the reasons I was very keen to be in small businesses was because I wanted to run something. and And so yeah. that's the step you take, right? You don't go from being a, you know, a, a regular director to sort of being CEO of, you know, footsie 100 right so that was a really nice opportunity it's a lot quicker and a lot dirtier when it's little so i remember a guy that came to work for me who used to work for me at tesca and then came to work for me one of the smaller businesses and he'd come in on a a day before he started working with us to like meet the team kind of Mm. thing and we're like oh hey come and look we've got christmas set up so look we're gonna look at the promo ends and kind of walk the shop and whatever tell us what you think and we sat down afterwards and had a coffee he's like i'm just worried about the pricing like why don't you do this why do you do that and the head of commercial was like cool let's do that then and afterwards, he was like, oh, my goodness. So, so, like, he's, like, he's a wizard that had found the wand. So he's like, well, what, what just happened? Because, you know, there was so no red tape. It's like we're all set around the table. We make the decisions. Let's get stuff done. So that sort of that ability to move things and make decisions is, mm-hmm. you know, really heady. It's really, I think, really exciting. On the flip side, you just don't have, and certainly I was running kind of, you know, very small businesses. You just don't have the resource to invest in things, especially talent. So again, you know, and certainly a sort of MD and CEO of, all of those two businesses, getting the right balance between how sort of rolling your sleeves up and getting your hands dirty, because you kind of have to, but also making sure you've got the right talent in place, because you can't run the whole business, the you know, right talent in place and empowering them to, to do things as well. Yeah. That's a big difference. And actually, a lot of people I've worked with who are now looking to go into small businesses and they'll say, they just said I'm too big business and I think that's rubbish. And i also <laughs> say, but there are differences that are going to be a shock to you. And I think, capability and process are big things so you know as someone who's run small businesses when I'm recruiting I always look for someone with a big business background because you know they'll be schooled in the right way to do finance HR like whatever it might be they will know the gold standard and that's kind of what you want whereas people that have come up through small business have different capabilities and get things done they can be super pragmatic but you're not going to get that kind of you know, especially when you're trying to take a business from small to mid-size and trying to scale mm. something, you need the process and the, those like, the right ways of doing things yeah. so that it's scalable.
0: I'm interested on that one about, because you mentioned there, you preferred recruiting from big business. Of How did you then, in that recruitment, if you've got that sort of, go back to the cliché consulting matrix of big business, small business, but then you mentioned the other point that your colleague or friend had been told you're too big business because some people – having grown up in larger organizations, do struggle to make that shift where you don't have, you know, someone responsible for every function and all of the internal side that goes with it. How did you assess that to get you someone who could bring the best of of big business but still fit into a smaller business? I would
1: usually ask questions around, I'd describe a situation, say kind of what would you do, or even examples. I mean, the, the, probably the killer one. And I was I was recruiting kind of like, you know, sort of C-level equivalent. It sounds very grand for a small business, but top team. And I would say, what would you do in your first 12 months? And, and it's usually very, very clear, A, if someone's been an operator before or not, because it's, you know, it's much more action-oriented and tactical and gets stuff done but also how they will adapt to frankly the scruffy edges that come with small businesses right yeah. and so when there's lots of you know like sort of diagnostics and audits and team in place and process and you're and you're sat there thinking wow nothing's happening for 12 months then okay <laughs> yeah whereas, whereas other people say well look, first thing is we've got to get this thing right let's just go deep there everything else will be fine let's go there so you can there's, there's sort of a pragmatism and a bias towards action that reveals itself if people and, and then i would just throw things in like saying well you've got no pa you get that right or like you, you know you <laughs> you've got no team how would you do it even if that wasn't true like so to really yeah. challenge people about resource you know and i mean i'm i remember the first business i ran that we ran a big start that there was a sort of cultural challenges ran a big staff engagement survey and i sat with a glass of wine writing the powerpoint on the results right like i was the md you know and and, and that's a small business that's sort of the reality so so i think i think and that's and for people thinking about moving into those roles really thinking about what they want to do I would say at some level all experience is great and you should I've I've certainly tried a bit of each of those and really got enjoyed them and got different things from them but I think being really honest with yourself and that you know is that how you want to spend your time because it's hard yards like it's hard it's not easy like it sounds very glamorous like working in Shoreditch on a startup is bloody hard work (laughs) right
0: so yeah I'm a much smaller scale but I'm there myself so I fully not Shoreditch I'm in Bath but I know exactly the feeling I'm gonna then and it brings us nicely back full circle and this is I'm going to caricature this because w- one of the things I try and do is is bring in what I think listeners will ask, and and part of that through osmosis, part of that's through things they do ask. And I, I think something that sort of sits with me is if I if you know if I look at your CV up to then, someone might be listening to this and thinking, well, hang on, Jess, you were you were MD, you were CEO, you'd reached you know to that point around getting to the top of the burger contest, you re- reached the top, and you're, you're doing great. Why are you going back into a consulting environment where? Potentially, you are no longer the, the top of the company, if you like.
1: Yeah, no, um, not even close. No.
0: <laughs> so you're, you know, and, and I appreciate that's not a step down, but in, in sort of some people's mind, they'll be like, that, that's a step yeah. down. And equally, you've gone from an organization where, like you say, it's scrappy, you're doing all that, back to the, the larger organization with everything that comes with that. And I, almost what was it that led you to do that and, and why
1: so um, from my perspective, I very transparently missed retail a bit. So I love retail and I was working in veterinary, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a branded customer facing multi-site business. It's kind of retailish, but sort of pure retail I'd missed. And and where the market is at the moment, it wasn't obvious to me who I wanted to work with, where I wanted to go, because the, the mm-hmm. constellation of, of people in the business and the sort of vision, ambition, and culture is so critical. So you can be whoever you are, you can work however hard you want to do. If it's not the right fit and a constellation of people, you're not going to achieve anything. So that's sort of really important. So for me, in a way, consulting sort of brought two things. So one mm. is a way to meet the teams or constellation of people across businesses that I want to work with. So I want to find the brave. There's such an exciting time in retail in the UK, huge transformation potential, and there'll be some huge winners and unfortunately some very big losers. And so for me, it's about the opportunity to find the constellation of people I wanted to work with, first as clients, then potentially maybe as peers sort of down mm-hmm. the line. And secondly, is it is a sort of skills thing. So While I've learned a huge amount in my time in industry, especially running small businesses, you're sort of learning by doing, and you're you're leveraging what you know to make things better. But you do at some point, I at some point missed having people around me, peers or superiors that I can learn from. And certainly sort of the sort of cutting edge stuff. So machine learning, advanced analytics, AI algorithms, sort of this sort of world, which is a huge part of what we do at BCG now, I didn't know anything about. You know, I hadn't had exposure. A small business couldn't afford to spell that, right? <laughs> Let alone have a, a squad of data scientists to do it. You've got to be kidding me. So so I think there's a real sort of selfish opportunity to upskill myself and have mm. exposure to the latest in thinking as well, mm. um, which was really appealing. And I say for me, it's 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 a little bit about what's next and the one after rather than what's forever, so...
0: I don't. If this puts you on the spot and you you don't want to answer, tell me. But what what is that for you? What is two? What you know? You gave the example. What is two on? What's the goal?
1: Not got a
0: clue. (laughs) Not got. and,
1: and, And honestly, I I I feel so much more peaceful not trying to know. Yeah. Because I don't know what I don't know yet, and that for me is what's exciting about a career is to understand what's you know. If you'd have asked me. Frankly, if you'd asked me a year ago, let alone five years ago, you're going to go back to BCG, I'd be like, "Don't be silly, like no, not happening at all." And I couldn't be more excited to be here. Like I'm yeah. really enjoying it. It was so the right move for me. So I think it's really important to kind of keep open because I think otherwise you can miss some really exciting opportunities when they present themselves.
0: And that open-mindedness thing, and it's coming across in space throughout the conversation. I, I think, it's a really, a really key point because. Like you say, if you don't, you stay blinkered, you you lose sight of what, what could be. And I think it brings us quite nicely on to actually the the area I know you're passionate about around helping young people. And, and sort of I know when I friends of now I'm 30, friends of mine and I just
1: say that, but that's such an old age.
0: I, I, I don't. I, I, honestly, I've, so I turned 30 back in November. I've got yeah. no problems with it. I think it's great. But the amount of people who are in our friendship group who are 29, it's sort of like that is the end of life as we yeah. know it. Yeah. Very much surprises me. But I do remember when I was 21 and by 30, I was going to be a millionaire. And we'd Oh be- yeah, weren't we
1: all? Exactly. Totally like retired. So- <laughs> <laughs> that was
0: my plan. So it's, it's nice and I'm not the only one that failed at that. But, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to, to exactly that point around open-mindedness, I think when you're younger, it's much easier, particularly in consulting to, to, like you say, let's take the BCG example. You come in, you're the top of the top of the top and you're told, right, you can broadly, if you hit this up and out, you'll climb to partner in however many years. And actually I'd be fascinated on how you counsel some of those even graduate level on but actually what they should be doing to have that successful career what they should be thinking to ensure they they build the foundations at that early stage to give them whatever success looks like in the future
1: yeah, I mean, I, and listen, I, again, it's a little bit of do as I say, not as I do. I remember vividly being in a relatively new associate in the BCG New York office, listening to a senior partner talk, doing the maths in my head of how many years it would take me to be him. Like, so so I mean, like, <laughs> I am fully guilty of, though the younger me was fully guilty of this. I sort of bring it back to, you know, careers are long. You know, like, I mean, I have conversations where people are like, oh, it's promotion's going to be delayed six months, like six months. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, PS, we're in July. Do you remember January? like it was yesterday like really so so I think I think my counsel it sounds very grand I'm not sure I qualified to give counsel but my, my thought would be embrace the learning opportunities and don't stress too much about timelines so it's a lot harder later in your career to be paid to do something you don't know how to do right and that is a massive privilege yeah. it's a huge privilege no one's paying me to be CTO of a Silicon Valley startup for good reason Right? but but because that's not a role I would add value in right, compared to other candidates but as a, as a more junior person in lots of roles and certainly in consulting it's such a privilege in the fact of you can learn so much and you'll get paid to do it and you'll get supported to do it so I would sort of see the opportunities as they are I'm quite instinctive so it may not work for everyone but you know I've sort of felt what felt right at the time and, and sort of followed that and, and trusted my instinct and judgment a little bit and also embraced it so sustainability is really important but frankly for most of my 20s I had way more energy anyway and I would finish work at 11 p.m. and go out for drinks you know and that was being 20s in Manhattan I guess but like I had different expectations because I wanted to learn and I was there to do the learning and that was sort of that's how the job repaid me effectively and and so that was the right trade off for me at that point in life
0: I like that point around actually the learning you get because I always think you know some of the when I was in consulting some of the the worst roles or you know, air quotes, worst roles are actually taught me the most, but they're rarely the sexy ones when you you go in, you know, everyone wants the, you, know, you mentioned a few things like AI, machine learning, everyone wants to do that. But actually it's some of the, I mean, for me, it was PMO, but some of the really nitty gritty basic roles
1: Absolutely
0: right. are, are the core ones. And I, I think that sort of seems to, at least as I hear it, make a lot of sense. I think the one that I know I would have struggled with, and I think frankly we all still struggle with is, is that taking that almost long-term mindset I know when we spoke last, you you, know, you framed it as well look, if you you get to that whatever your top grade is or your top job, given everything involved in that and the remuneration, if that's your if that's your goal, the rest will become a rounding error. So it you know, ten years at it doesn't really matter if you were two years later to the party or not. But I I'd love to know how how you or how you help people foster that mindset because it's easy for us to say yeah you know think think long term, but actually how how can or how do you suggest people do
1: and i think it's really difficult but again i think it's about being, you know don't listen to me be true to yourself like what, mm. what do you want to do i would discourage anyone from thinking about what they want in 10 years time and working very literally towards it it's just not how my, my <laughs> mind works right but but yeah i think recognizing that you will learn along the way you'll feel very differently in three years time to how you feel today for sure and, and so um, embrace the learning opportunity and realize it's not forever. I think it's really important. But equally catch yourself. As we talked about earlier, like if you start, you know, I'll just get through one more year. If you hear that kind of sort of language in your head, then ask yourself some real questions because that, that's sort of not what it's about. And I think that's more why that sort of oddly longer term ambition but shorter term focus is really unhealthy and unhelpful. Yeah. Because you end up enduring things you don't love, this lofty goal in the future that probably won't happen and is miles off. Yeah. I don't articulate it very clearly. I
0: don't I Well, well no, I think I think you do because I i know when I was and I still it's sort of it's it's etched into my brain is I think in 12 week sprints because project work is large you know, crudely 12 weeks or six months, whatever, you know, a multiple of that. And actually I think that's what in part perpetuates the, oh, I'll get this 12 weeks out of the way and then I'll do...
1: I totally agree. It's really unhelpful. And 12 weeks, I don't know about you, but I blink and it's just sort of gone. Like The weeks (laughs) go faster. I I had some great... It wasn't really advice. It was someone telling us about how they run their career. A a very senior BCG partner said to me that he has an approach where he, every year, so Christmas holidays, he stops and takes stock and says, am I happy Am I sort of learning more than it's costing? Is this the right balance for me, for my family, for my life, etc.? This has been asking this for like 20 years. And it's really helpful and, and instantly he is a BCG after sort of that period of time but he said in the first couple of years he was like not sure about it actually and then he decided well these three things need to change significantly otherwise this time next year I'll move on and he said actually it helped him take a bit of a longer term view it helped him make decisions out of the heat of moments you know when there's always things that go wrong and are pressured etc so you can be a bit more rational about it but actually he said it also kept him sane during the year because if you're second guessing every 10 minutes is this job right for me am I going to have a platform Is am I going to get promoted etc it's exhausting. Yeah. Whereas actually, I think if you can just sort of roll with it for a, a you know twelve month periods, that probably helps as a, as a first step.
0: I like what I hear in that as well. I think, like you say, taking stocks really important as an aside. And I realise it's a terrible example because I can't remember the name, but a previous guest has talked about almost taking every six months and in a wheel. And I will find the name and email it to you. But basically, Excellent. partitioning off sections of your life so work, family, health, fitness, and just scoring it because it gives you exactly I think like your colleagues talked about. That assessment of am I happy? Am I getting the balance right? Yeah. There's a, there feels like an implicit point in there, and I, I, you can tell me if it's been something for yourself because I think it comes out of your story is actually there's also taking action and taking control because your colleague's example, he decided things weren't happy, and he made steps to change them. And I think so often people sort of generalisation, but can float around being battered by the waves of the you know the job, if you like.
1: I think it's a really good point. I think it's a really good point, and it's actually it's it's probably the most important point in terms of you're going to give advice to people, which is like your career is your own. Take responsibility mm. for it, and that's true at any level, because at any level you, know, you, you sort of you've just joined after university. You know, you're you're being clear that your goal is the the broadest learning possible. You're going to show up with enthusiasm and passion for kind of whatever you're given, which frankly is my best advice for your first two years in consulting. Like, embrace the lot of it. And that will come off you in spades and people are gonna to want to work with you and give you opportunities, et cetera. So I think but taking responsibility, so people talk about sustainability, and I have a young child, so it's something that I, you know, don't have all the answers to, but but think about and work on a lot. Fundamentally, it kind of comes back to you getting clear on what do you want from a career point of view, what do you want from a lifestyle point of view, and go get it, you know? Mm. And actually, if it's if it's not possible, don't blame people try and make it possible and and actually sort of you know uh, i was talking to a a guy here the other week who he works four days a week and doesn't work wednesdays and i was talking about it and he said well listen i decided that um i love this job but i wasn't going to stay if i couldn't find a way to have some time for me and some time for my children and so that's what was going to work for me and what was the risk in asking because i was going to leave if it didn't work and i thought you know that's exactly the right attitude though sort of like you know test things out but sort of find your model and i'd say similarly with career progression and that can be internally externally Whatever it is, you know, having a view of what you're looking for and what's important to you—it sounds so trite, but the opportunities do appear because you know what you're looking. You see things for what they are. So the example of NutriCenter. So when I was considering the NutriCenter role, I had a number of people, very well-meaning, call me and say, "Don't touch it," like, "Don't touch it" for several reasons. Don't think it's a good idea, da 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 da, because you know it was a business in turnaround. Um, and so I was like, "It's not going to be your gold watch." It's not going to da da da. And that was really well meant, but completely irrelevant because. Yeah. I wanted to run my own business and actually turnaround was even more exciting because frankly, what harm can you do? (laughs) You've got permission to be super brave, which is much more exciting from my point of view. It was a huge opportunity for me and and definitely changed the trajectory of my career, but I knew what I was looking for. So I think it's the same thing of like just sort of taking responsibility for what's your brand, what's your ambition and what's the life you want and go out there and and, and see what you can do. And you might have to make trade-offs, but sort of be in the driving seat rather than, as being pulled and pushed around or, or a bit of a victim in it? Like, take yeah. charge.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's something that, you, you know, you mentioned you were a child of the 80s and how careers have changed. And I and it amazes me how many people I still hear say things like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I don't like the role, but I've got to be here a year because, you know, you've got to be in a role a year. And I just, I think there is such an element that actually most changes are rarely there's very little in in any walk of life that is going to be a terminal change, if you like, you know, particularly with career. There's, it might mean, to the point you mentioned on our call, of it takes you a couple more years to make partner. But if it takes you a couple more years, well, you're still going to get there and you can still have, okay, you may totally have nine right. years, not eight or whatever, sorry, not 10. but. In the grand scheme of things, is that so, good? Gonna...
1: And, and again, finding your path of things, doing things you want to do. So one of my big learnings, I I don't know if there's like a, a psychological profile. I'm sure a psychologist have a, a field day with this <laughs> and everyone else listening because we're all sort of cut from a similar cloth. But I got into a stage in my career where I was doing work that I was good at, that people thought I was good at and wanted me to do more of. And so I did more of it and I didn't really enjoy it. And, and that's very hard because, and I'm still embarrassingly wired a bit that way of like, tell me I did something good and I'm going to feel really good. <laughs> it's like the, the, the inner head girl I've never quite got rid of, right? Like, so so um, I think it's really important to ask yourself that. And now, again, you know, you don't want to have seven one-year experiences on your resume because frankly, that's no good. It's like something just making it to you like, what's going on? But again, if you're in a role, you're not sure it's the right thing, go and have a conversation, like what, it doesn't matter what level you're at, go talk to your line manager or, or whoever it is in, in the business and say, or your advisor, your career advisor, if you're in consulting, and say, this is the experience I'm having, this is what I would like it to look like can you give me advice like what could i do differently and and really encourage people to give you the feedback cuz people like genuinely i've never seen an example of someone not being in the right role or or performing in the role and at least five senior people knowing exactly what they need to do differently but they haven't got permission to give the feedback. It doesn't feel safe. So again, if you're proactive about it, and not just like sit down and say, I want feedback, but like give it the right context, frame it, et cetera, ask for the advice genuinely, then there's a lot of people out there that can actually help you and give you another opinion. It's just that it's feedback can be at a high personal cost to the person giving it. And actually, if they don't kind of care about you that much, well, you've not given them a reason to, then why should they stick their neck out, right?
0: Yeah, and, and I think that permission element's so key of... Actually, if you, you if you don't have that permission, like you say, it's very high risk because it could just be seen as as rude, and I I think that's a that is a, another sort of key element to this. I'm I'm intrigued, and it might be a nice way of summarizing all of these points we've talked about, or it might be a completely different thing. And this is where we start to get into more of the, I'll use my parlance not to offend any of my other guests or listeners of strategy consultancies. You may use whatever you want.
1: Top tier. Just a- <laughs> <laughs> make a note, that's T-O-P.
0: <laughs> but one of the things that is is more unique about your group of firms, you're, you're putting me on the spot. I'm here, Jess. T- um, so teasing um, you. <laughs> the, the, the strategy firms. is, is So the consulting world I'm from in more of the operational space, there is a, a sort of high-performing culture, but there isn't as a uh, I guess an open up or out so and this is the same across the likes of Accenture and others that people can quite comfortably sit at a certain grade and, and that's fine almost for those who I'm intrigued on what are the key differences between those who are pushed out versus what those are pushed up and is that in effect those who have embraced everything we've talked about or is there something that is is more or is more specific to that that yeah, distinction
1: and Kennedy and, I'm not qualified to answer. I don't know. I mean I'm back in consulting like 4 months, right? But I think the the only thing I would say is is the the language is wrong. So in my experience no one's ever pushed out and certainly no one's ever pushed up. I think it's really important that, that again it's it's individual conversations, individual recognition of what works, what doesn't work. We are all unique creatures and in, in our wonderful diversity for that and this job isn't for everyone and that's okay. It doesn't make you a lesser person, right? Like it just it just there's, there's a lot of great operators that wouldn't have made it in consulting and there's a lot of great consultants that wouldn't make it in operations so yeah. you know, I think it's important that it's a two-way dialogue and there's a there's as many different reasons to stay or to go as there are people that work here and I think that's really important one of my learnings so I was talking about sort of having role models early in your career and I, I didn't have a lot of female role models that that I could relate to and I, and I wish I had have done because one thing that I've learned, probably being in that it being an industry gave me that I'm, I'm bringing back into consulting now is to to be myself more and to not conform so much. I used to have a really big sense. that I've only really realized in the last few years that I had to look and sound like everyone else here. That was yeah. my belief, to succeed. And it's something that I'm quite allergic to now. So even though it's very so implicit in your question, I'll pick up on it in that sense of what is the type of person that succeeds? What's the type of person that succeeds? Like, no, 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 no. It's not the reality. There's there's a real diversity in terms of what works. And again, that's about taking responsibility for knowing yourself, being proud of yourself, being yourself and taking responsibility for deciding if it works or it doesn't work, but kind of taking charge of that. And so I think it's really important that there are many different quote unquote types of people. Mm-hmm. And by that, I think I personalities, level of ambition, etc. that that can do very well in all different roles, but it's a very one-to-one individual thing.
0: I like the answer, albeit it wasn't the one that I think I was expecting. I'm sure listeners weren't expecting. I think part of this was hoping to get the answer to exactly that, but I, I think there is a an, you know implied element of humility there because I, I think one criticism often levelled at consultancies, you know, we largely think we're the best people at everything, and you know that that is something that clients and operators sometimes struggle with when they get them on us on site. And I think to to the point you made there, actually, it's about being the best at your thing. And for some, and, and like you say, I think the language probably perpetuates the myth um, that you have to be the you know, the square peg to get in the square hole. And actually, I really like what you're saying that there, you can be yourself. It's ultimately okay to be different. It's okay to be you. I'm intrigued on that though, around actually what should the leaders of these organizations, people like yourself, partners, managing directors, do to help their more junior colleagues feel comfortable there? Because it's one thing saying that, I know that at 23, you emulate who's around you and you f- you take the lead there so actually what can people at your level be doing to make the more junior people feel comfortable to be themselves
1: I think a big part of it is making sure there's sufficient diversity in the leadership of any organization not just consulting organizations but to see that lots of different people with lots of different styles and ways of being can be successful and that people have different models to make it work so it's one of the things that I love about BCG and it sounds like a big plug it's ugh, it's not meant to be but I, I do it is is that sense of there are very different people that have very different models of making this job work that that act in very different ways and it's something that I'm very committed to as a woman especially in bringing just a different way of doing things and and one that's sort of been in industry as well I speak differently I approach problems differently I probably tell ruder jokes you know and and, and it's something that I think the important thing is it's it's you know My big learning has been, you know, it's not about looking for permission from role models. It's about taking permission because no one ever stopped me being myself. I had told myself a story that it was not okay. And I have no idea where it comes. I'm sure it's deep-seated from when I was a child or something. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's something there. But actually, no one would have ever stopped me doing it. There was never, you know. And so, so I think diverse role models, but also just bravery to be yourself and accept that, you know, why would you want to be somewhere that you didn't, want you for who you are. Like, like, let's just stand back and think about it. Well, what's the point? So you can go to, and I've been there and it's exhausting. You know, you can go to work and, and sort of pretend to be something you're not quite right. It takes a huge amount of energy that's wasted energy that's not helping you. It's not helping your teams. It's not helping your clients or your customers, depending on what your job is. So, yeah.
0: So that role model point is an interesting one. And I guess I'm going to give you two sides of a a coin and and I'll let you sort of take them. Like I mentioned, I have a few friends and people in the industry. And I mentioned that I was speaking with a senior BCG female partner. What would be useful? What would be interesting? And, And there's sort of two answers I got. One is almost your advice for helping get more women onto the boards or into the partner and leadership team of consulting firms. Because at its essence, you go on most consulting firms' websites. Most of them are white. Most of them are men. Interestingly, the other response I got, and it's worth saying this is a sample of It was actually a a good friend of mine who said, well, I don't really like talking about it because almost by saying there's this issue, it almost implies women need help and actually takes away from some of their achievements. Now, I'm sure the answer lies somewhere in between, but I'd be really interested almost on how we get the conversation to a place or your perspective on how we get to a place where we embrace diversity without groups who are, let's just say, not white men, don't feel, you know, like my friend did, that actually I'm being positively discriminated against or positively discriminated for
1: so i should flag i'm a very very proud feminist and i feel very passionate about this and um brilliant um, i totally disagree with your friend in every single way go on please um, because we are a, a group of women and again i just want to out. i don't speak for women i speak for <laughs> jessica like, blah, <laughs> la, 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 and all that stuff but we are grossly underrepresented in business generally and at senior levels right so this is an issue and there has been dialogue and wonderfully increasing dialogue in the last sort of probably five years plus it's become mainstream media comments and all of those things so so number one thing if we don't talk about it it's not going to happen it's not on people's minds so we need to talk about it and it's not about somehow we are lesser if we get a bit of support frankly there's a thousand years of white male privilege to work against and you know and, and again people will sort of do, and it's not a criticism but it's how it is we are all hugely biased in ways it's completely subconscious we don't know about it and so we need to address that and so Talking about it, frankly, I'm a passionate supporter of quotas and all of those things, because Mm. if we don't move things, they're not going to change because we all work with biases. We all like being around people like us. Let's be Mm. real. It's it's more fun to have a conversation with someone, the Myers-Briggs type that you've got. All of those things are true. But equally decision-making and thinking is better with a more diverse group of people. So it's like boards, for example. So decision-making debate quality comes from diversity of opinion and dissent. But if we've got a certain group of people that dominate a certain profile of person are they going to naturally and subconsciously be attracted to people that look like them and sound like them and think like them we're not getting to that place so so i do think there's a point of saying look, we've been talking about it and saying well let's not have quotas let's be all gentle for 10 years and it's not moved anywhere show me a stat on women in the, the footsie 100 women on boards women in c-suite positions it's, it's sort of not moving and i think consulting is one of the worst for it frankly it's a probably professional advisory generally you know most certainly in retail, most clients are much more equally balanced from a gender perspective than, than a lot of the consulting firms that serve them, right? So it's absolutely a challenge. It doesn't detract from individual achievements because this is not a zero-sum game. Right? So so if if women can be successful, they create more opportunities for other women to be successful. We explicitly and subconsciously open people's minds to there being different ways to make it work. We build people's comfort and familiarity with working with people that kind of don't look like you, don't think like you, sound a bit different, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really, really important we talk about it. We talk about it until everyone's thoroughly bored of it. And, and a lot of the work I've seen doing at BCG, I've been really pleased actually at the very senior levels of you know training on unconscious bias so at that level of saying and i've had loads of senior male partners say to me my goodness i had no idea you know that i'll do and it's small things of sort of like and and actually i don't relate to this one which is guys so they're walking around like, hi guys how are we doing and 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 they said i've not really thought about that but maybe that's great that's sort of you know a different thing so i think we do need to talk about i think we need to have i'm afraid quotas rules dialogue etc and one thing i would say is that I've noticed that women in industry are much more clued into this than women in consulting. So if I, if I were to speak to someone, a woman eight years into her career in consulting, and be like, oh, what's it like to be a woman? How are you finding it? There would be complete denial and rejection of there being any issues whatsoever. Whereas if I spoke to a woman in industry, there would be a real appreciation I'd asked. There'd be an open discussion about pros and cons and their thoughts. And there'd be a load of questions they wanted to discuss so I think there's something interesting which in some ways is great because potentially because it's such an explicit I guess kind of as much as possible fact-based appraisal system in consulting you know where you are certainly I'm sure it's very similar across firms like at any given moment you've got all your appraisals all your feedback it's very very clear how you're doing maybe people don't feel the bias as explicitly as you do maybe in industry but I think it's something we need to be careful of that it doesn't become a blind spot that we we feel like it's an ugly thing to talk about and that's absolute rubbish because we need more of us.
0: So I I love the challenge and it's why I I ask questions like this. And I guess on that point specifically, because I'm fascinated with what you say about the juxtaposition between consulting and industry, you highlight feedback rounds because I think you like, because this is challenging, I think I'll challenge back and almost say that feels like an excuse to an extent. And I'd be fascinated in your view of why, if we take feedback out, why is it that the women in consulting have such a different view. What are those causes that we, you know, maybe need to look
1: at? I I, I really don't know. I really don't know. And I say it's a good thing in some senses because, because the women I'm talking to say, also the the more junior women I'm talking to, the senior women aren't, they're much more vocal about it. And, you know, we've worked bloody hard to get there. And so we're going to look out for people they can. But I think the, the more junior people I speak to say they haven't been conscious of it. They haven't been aware of it. I don't know why that is. It's sort of, Probably not 100% true. I think there's probably Mm. things maybe being missed. I mean, I look back in my early career and things like, things I didn't help myself to. So I would naturally in a meeting room ask if anyone wanted coffee and go and get the coffees. I might be the most senior person there, but I'd go and get people coffees. But actually I'm positioning myself in a role that's maybe not that helpful Mm. I've been in situations where I've had people make a big fuss about the shoes I'm wearing before a board meeting started, which when I was junior, I thought that was really nice. Like how nice they were trying to make me feel involved. But of course the conversation stopped and then everyone turned back and the guys got on with the meeting and I was just the girl with pretty shoes at the end of the table. So I I think there is, there does need to be an awareness about it to make sure that we sort of, as women, take up our space actually at the table and make sure we position ourselves in the right way to be at the table, taken seriously and, 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 you know, involved.
0: Yeah, and I I think there's some fascinating examples in there. I almost I would love to keep going with this, but I'm very mindful of your time. And so I I always say this in these interviews, but I never get enough time with my guests. because um, 'cause they're like yourself, fascinating and we could go. Let's on hope the work.
1: listeners think the same. They might all be asleep. So uh. you,
0: So it's it's just asn't it's something it's funny. I mean I tell people I do podcasts of an hour to two hours, they sort of go, oh My gosh, but you you would be amazed the well, you wouldn't be amazed. A lot of people like listening to this because it helps them. Good. And I think the the depth of advice that's given and the insight you you just don't get in 20 minutes and I guess I, I the way I look at it is I'm sure there's junior people in this business who would who'd bite your arm off to spend an hour with you and so here they can have an hour on repeat <laughs> if they want to go back and listen. I think
1: most of them I just took the time in my diary it's kind of how we work around here I don't, I don't get that. They're, don't, they're much control over my time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, I warn you uh, I, I do warn you now if anyone listens you might suddenly get a flurry of diary invites but uh, so to bring us way back onto topic I told you we might we might go off on tangents so the last two questions and these are questions I ask all of my guests so in Interested to hear your answers both for the similarities and, and differences so the first one of these is about books and that is i love reading i think you can learn so much from from stories and others where others have been before and i'd love to hear almost what is the book or books that you've gifted most and, and why was it
1: can i just say i think this is a brilliant question it's, it's um it's embarrassingly saying a lot about me and probably will, will will underline what I was just talking about. So the first one is Caitlin Moran. Okay. Um, if I pronounce that right, Caitlin Moran, I think. How to be a woman. It's effectively a feminist manifesto for, for uh, the 2000s, the 2010s as we are now. I would encourage anyone to read it. It really gave me a different perspective. I was a woman that 10 years ago would have said, oh, I'm not a feminist or anything. Ooh, sort of an ugly word. And it really helped me sort of get my mind around what the challenges were and and kind of the role I could play and the role I wanted to play. So I give give that to everyone that's my age, basically. And then the other one is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. (laughs) So these are for my younger feminist recruits that every young girl in my life has had in their stocking last Christmas. Uh, It's a lovely, lovely book for, I think, probably between about five and 10, which talks. About again, it's about the stories we tell that, that shapes the culture we live in. That talk, I don't know if you know it, but it, it talks about women across the ages that have done incredible things. So, uh, first woman to fly a plane across the Atlantic, or you know, just, just really different these uh, the little, stories.
0: I've seen this, might and this isn't to belittle it, but I've seen little children's books similar where they talk about um, there
1: are versions of that. Is that, yeah, yeah. Is that so the similar... It's a similar idea? So, this is like a really beautiful book, sits on the bedside table, and it's sort of one page and a picture for every person that talks about oh, what brilliant. they did in their life. Life that was interesting and different and the idea is just a sort of that cultural narrative of possibilities and through storytelling that you know it's not always sort of just the guy that did the great things that, that some, some women have done some good stuff too and not just in the last 10 years but in the last sort of 200.
0: Yeah I, I think I, that sounds brilliant and it, it funnily enough reminds me it's different but reminds me of one of Lindsay's recommendations which was Fierce Fairy Tales by I want to say Nikita Gill.
1: Oh, um, I love it I'm buying it that sounds awesome. Well I, I'll, <laughs> I'll send you the link please but, do. I,
0: but I know a lot of and I, I'm always curious careful about naming people in this but a, a, a lot of sort of female friends of ours ended up buying it off the back of that interview um, and it's gone down very well so I excellent all,
1: please uh, do send it to i me. will do is that um, a good recommendation.
0: so then very last question jess and th- this is as much a it could be a summary of some of the things we talked about. It could be a chance to, to throw something completely new into the mix. But this is, again, something I ask every guest and it, it's a three-parter in one, which is you have three people in front of you and you and you can give one piece of advice to each. The three people, they are one person who's just starting their career. So yep. take Jess just going off to, to New York. One is I use four to five years in and then I keep telling myself off. So I think sort of wherever is best placed in that middle grade so it's someone who's more senior than junior but not senior in the sort of senior levels of the firm and then the last person is someone at that principal level as you'd call it here at bcg so someone who is on the cusp of partner and approaching that decision point and and the the question is quite simply what one piece of advice would you give to each good question
1: okay so i would say for those people just starting out would just be embrace the learning there is no role I've had since or I've learnt more than my first probably two to four years in consulting and whatever you do next it mm-hmm. will certainly for me has given me more value than any other piece of education I've ever had, it was like the best quote unquote MBA I could have had so just embrace it and recognise that is what that is what it, what it is mm-hmm. uh, and it's a huge investment in you. Those sort of in the middle of their career I would say decide what you want and take ownership to make it happen which we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. so be in the driving seat Seat. don't be the victim have the conversations engage people figure out what action you can take to shape your career in the and, and, and not just your career like your, your job like what your week to week looks like take the driving seat and then I think for those sort of as we said that sort of cusp level deciding sort of what next is figure out what gives you energy and that can be topics it can be clients it can be colleagues it can be industries and create opportunities to be around those things and, and to make it happen because Life is short, work is long. At the end of the day, it's got to be true to you, and it's got to be fun. Otherwise, and obviously, fun. It sounds flippant, but I mean it truly. You know, it's got to give you energy. It's got to be worth getting out of bed for. You've got to be glad it's how you spent your week. And if over a prolonged period of time you're not answering yes to any of those questions, then then have a different conversation.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think that's a brilliant place to close, Jess. So, thank you very much thank for this. You. I've really enjoyed it. I think um, I, I'm sure my listeners will get a lot out of it. I. I've loved it. And Lindsay was spot on that you would you would have made and you have made a fantastic you are guest. Very kind. So Jess, thank you very much. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.